when I spoke to you before, you said you couldn't read until you were... No, I, yeah, I, I, well, I didn't read a book until I was 20. So when I went to school, my biggest ambition was to get a Bristol Rovers tattoo and get a CSE in woodwork. I failed at both. In this episode, we talk to Jimmy Golveen, born and bred Bristol artist. He recently brought Yoko Ono's work to Bristol, curating an exhibition at the Georgian House in Clifton. He makes music and he has lots of interesting things to say about art in the city and how it's been co-opted by the middle class. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. All right, Jimmy. Yep. How you doing? You good? I'm good, mate. Good to hear from you. When I decided compiling the list of guests, I, I definitely wanted to talk to you because I think you're one of the real interesting characters in, in Bristol. So we're having a chat on Zoom, but you are sat at a piano, aren't you? Ooh, sat nice. next to my grand piano. A little tune. Do me, do me, because I, I can only play chopstick. <laughs> so do you spend a lot of time at the piano then they, I guess. it's not a hobby it's a full-time thing for me being a musician and artist it was something I never thought about it just happened and unfolded and I just followed that path through up for my whole life really so I'm, I'm really grateful I'm still able to do it and survive you know the sort of Stravinsky slash Brian Eno with Lawrence Weston thanks this day. Well, I don't know how, how that would go down in the national press, but yeah. <laughs> Was it behind you? Is that one of your paintings? It is, yeah, yeah. Kind of American abstract expressionism, I guess, but modern, my take on it. Cool. The painting tends to be sort of really full on and quite sort of very sort of macho in its approach with like the paints, but the music's really soft and really classical and not the sort of thing you would expect from me. The, the big label story, once Colson statue went down, the statue of Jen Reed, he was at the, he was at the BLM protest in the city, That's right. uh, put there by artist Mark Quinn. Um, you, you've worked with Quinn, haven't you, or, or you've had... I haven't, I, we've never met, but I was in an exhibition with him in London about five years ago. It, this whole sort of issue seems to divide so many people, and even my own sort of opinion has been quite ambiguous, because obviously... Mark Quinn's an incredibly successful multi-millionaire artist, white guy who lives in London. So a bit of me was like, well, this is quite imperialist, you know, for you to sort of bring this here and just dump it here and say, this is what you're having. But my first impression was I, I thought the statue was amazing because I just thought it was a statement to see a statue of a black woman who's a, who's a real person from Bristol who, who ended up being interviewed on Channel 4 News saying that, that, that she has suffered racism and this is for her mother, her family. I thought that was really, really powerful. And it really, really resonated. And I thought the actual work of seeing her immortalised in statue by famous living artists was a really powerful thing. How often do people like her get that voice, get that platform? They don't. But obviously, that's just my opinion. And then within 24 hours, uh, the statue was, was removed and was taken down by, by right. the council. I mean, I know that you know, Marvin Rees has a particular sort of stance on what he... The problem is, it's like he's trying to please everybody and you're never going to please everybody. For me, having been one of those people that's, that's been asking for the Colson statue to be removed for at least 30 years, 
You know, on many occasions we have been having these conversations and we contacted city council. No one even responded. So how come that took democracy in action to pull that statue down? Do we have to wait another 30 years to decide what's going to, to replace it, you know? So that's what kind of upset me. I just felt, for me personally, he could have said to people, right, I'm going to take this down, but I'm, I know people will want to see it. Let's just leave it up for one week and then I'm going to remove it. And also my other beef with it is that if that was a Banksy, that would have not have been removed. Why are we, someone somewhere is making a decision to take a statue down that they couldn't make before to take a statue of a slave trader down? Somebody did point, else did point that out to me and say, but when Banksy puts a statue in Palestine or in, on the subway in New York or in somewhere in South America, in Rio, in Brazil, people don't start going, well, you're not from Brazil. You can't put, you can't do that here. Why, why, why did we, why did it matter that he was from London? Any good artist has a universal voice. And that guy used a universal platform. For me personally, it would have been great if one of those guys had ever approached some, some young black artist in Bristol or St. Paul's said, look, I'm going to give you a boatload of cash. I want you to do what you want to do. You know, but then maybe that wouldn't have got the publicity. I don't know. Was he, was he using his white privilege to kind of position himself? And he was all across the media, Jimmy, wasn't he? In the, he, he, was, he put him. But the thing is, yeah, because I mean, obviously he got a massive amount, you know, that, that story went worldwide. The thing is, whatever you do in this world, you're going to get criticism. It's just like Bob Geldof with Band-Aid. Lots of people are really horrible about that. They're always sniping. They're always saying, it's really easy to dismiss people. And it would have been easier for Mark Quinn to do nothing. He's not starting out in his career. He's a 60-odd-year-old bloke. He's got millions of pounds, that guy. He doesn't need to do it. You know, it would have been easier for him not to do it, maybe. So the fact that he did do it. What do you think? Because um, a lot of people are denying agency to Jen Reed on this, aren't they? That is almost as if that she's placated against her will to do it. When you know she's decided to do it, she's done it herself by the the, the, the constant focus being on Mark Quinn and his wealthy white privilege. Are we not denying agency to Jen Reed herself? In yeah, a way? we are. You know, one of the biggest, one of the most powerful statements ever about the suffering of, of you know of black people was that was that song "Strange Fruit" that Billie Holiday covered. That was written by a white guy. So we got to stop. You know, sometimes the message. It, 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 you know, we need to focus on on the actual message. Because I read an interview in, in online. I think it was the Guardian Independent, and some London black artist was really, really angry about Mark Quinn and said that he was just using it. He was promoting himself. He was exploiting yeah. black people. He was really angry about it. And I, you know, I sort of take on what he says as well. But for me personally, maybe it would be easier for Mark Quinn not to have done anything. Surely we would still criticise him for being a wealthy middle class guy that that, that that wasn't using his voice. The fact that he did use his voice, he mostly really knew that he was going to get a lot of flack for this, which he did. Because even even the day after I walked past it, and someone had put a big sign up saying Mark Quinn loves money, not blacks. I mean, that's like really yeah. heavy stuff, man. I'm sure he got a lot of flack, but then. I, I, don't, I, think, I think we need to focus on the fact that Jen Reid was, was given a platform and she was on national news. And for me, that was the moment and that was, that was her moment. And the statue being there was enabling that conversation to take place. So the fact it got taken down so quick for me was like stopping the conversation. When it did get taken down so quickly, um, you know, we, we've got to give a, you know, we're both here as as white people talking about an issue to do with Black Lives Matter. And that, you know, that has some, some degree of context yeah. to this conversation. And I saw a lot of activity on uh, social media, um, photographs uh, of, of young black girls kind of stood outside all together, yeah. smiling, happy. This is the kind of moment. I, I wonder if there's a, you know, that what I'm getting back from some people is actually that, you know, the black community are quite divided on this, yeah, actually. But I think there's an awful lot. 
you know, as you said, you know, did you have to take it down in 24 hours? And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know. It's uh, um, what, what, what the fundamental reason for taking it down um, seems to be that it's, it's more about the message it sends across the whole of the city and the fact that the city weren't involved in this. Yes, I press for me, for my opinion, I think he could have just been a bit more compassionate and not so, so sort of swift to sort of act the way he did. As I said, for me personally, you know, we were asking for the Colston statue to be taken down for at least 30 years. And I remember seeing him talk about it a few years ago, justifying it on the news saying that it was a difficult conversation and it wasn't as simple as that. Well, hey, you managed to do this on your own because obviously you didn't obviously have any meetings for anybody because you just went ahead and did it. And and the fact that that plinth has created this massive conversation, I think that just shows the power of art. The thing is, isn't it? you think you know ultimately Mark Quinn's put it out there for people to talk about it. That's what art is, and and people are, are talking about it. And I think a lot of people, I know a lot of people who are massively upset and angry about how he dealt with it. Lawrence Ho, all those all those real voices, Sean Sobers, Blackman, they all they all they loved it being there. And that's not democracy. And we will never, as a city, agree what's going to go on that plinth. So you're somebody who was a supporter of Marvin that's now going the other way. Yeah, I was, yeah. Because to be honest with you, he's an invisible mayor to me. He doesn't, he just seems someone who's completely unreachable. You can't communicate with him. There's no, you know, I've written to him five times, got completely ignored when I broke Yoko Ono here. When I contacted George first in the past, at least the guy would call me the day after. So what, what would you like to see? Put on the plinth you know white people should should keep quiet for now i think i think we should, you know we should be asking members of the black community there we've got enough amazing artists in this city like really talented people and so for them to be given a platform and not in a patronizing way but in a really powerful you know you can make a statement this is this is this is your voice then that's what i want to say i want whatever they want i'm totally i'm walking behind them not you know not, i'm not walking in front of them you know when i spoke to you before you said you couldn't read until you were no idea I, I well i didn't read a book until i was 20 so when i went to school my biggest ambition was to get a bristol rovers tattoo and get a cse in woodwork i failed at both and uh, <laughs> so when i was 19 i met a middle class girl who was at cotton who played for the avon schools orchestra and she ended up dumping me because her parents really hated me because i had a really crap homemade tattoo on my arm which they thought was disgusting so she <laughs> kind of broke my heart and then i thought right i've got to start educating myself so i went to film tech and did some O-levels and A-levels all in one year. And then I went to the Bath Academy of Art. Bath at the time had the best foundation, of course, in the country. So I went there for an interview, not thinking I was going to get in, but they loved the work. And uh, I was like a fish out of water, but it was really good, you know? How, 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 could, you, how could you get through life not up to the age of 20 without reading a book? I, I was just ignorant, you know? So sometimes you have to be told, you, you know, you're a piece of shit by some girl's parents in no uncertain terms. I was 19, it really crushed me. But I'm glad because I don't want to be patronised. And I think this is the problem we've got now is looking at all the stuff that's going on around the Black Lives Matter. And I can't remember this name, but there's a really good, uh, like a world authority on sort of Black Lives Matter in America. And he said recently, it's not the thugs we've got to be scary of, it's the white middle class, you know, patronising people that are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. And I thought, yeah, he's, he's making a really good point. But you're in a, you're in a world, uh, the, the arts world, where you must come across those type of people quite a lot and I would imagine somebody like yourself from where you come from would be in the it's in the minority you know yeah absolutely yeah of course I mean the art world I'm, I'm not in it I'm trying to get in it and I want to be in it and I sort of sell my paintings and I'm grateful but you know it's an incredibly sort of upper you know white middle class privileged world so it, how do you feel when you walk into a room with people like that well I almost feel uncomfortable I don't feel like I belong there you know 
because there's always like you know there's, there's this difficult point where you start having to have conversations with people and i've either lived on my own too long or i've always done my own thing so i'm not very good at holding back i don't know if i'm on the spectrum but people don't like it when it's like bob marley said if you speak the truth people hate you and if you you know play the game then everyone loves you and i don't i've never played any games so so, a, so a kid from a council estate in North Bristol is 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 playing classical music. I mean, I know we can't pigeonhole things, but that is that is, doesn't happen a lot, does it? I don't know. I mean, Keith Tibbet just died. I don't know if you know him, but he was an amazing jazz pianist. Yeah, but he was from Southmead, and he he never sort of played the game either. But you know, he never got the sort of recognition he deserved. As I said, it's a difficult one because people presume when they hear like the narrative that you're making with the painting and the music, it's it's quite intellectual and it's aspiration. So mm. people immediately presume that you come from this, from this sort of background. And when you haven't, you know, nine times out of 10, people get really, really uncomfortable when they talk to me. So when I first met you, we were at this kind of event where everyone had to sort of introduce themselves in the, around the table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you, the reason you stuck out to me is, there, I, mean, I think the guy, the fella next to you, spent about 20 minutes talking about himself. And it came, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and it came to you and you just went, I don't want to do that. And just looked at the next one, and the kind of room just went like, "Oh, everyone was really uncomfortable." But I was like inwardly thinking, "Ah, fucking hell, fair play. I, I like this guy. I want to talk to him." I don't want to sell myself. I don't. I want the music and the art to speak. I don't. It's got so difficult. If you're slightly wayward, you don't fit in. The pressure's enormous. So many people are now successful because they're good at selling themselves because they can talk the bullshit. You very much see your art, your music, as a mechanism to express things around you, social issues. You know, if you're going to be an artist, it's just about being honest. If you've got something to say, then you're lucky because most people haven't. So, so are, do you, are people scared of you sometimes a little bit? Yeah, because you, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you've got that. You have got that vibe. I'm not, I'm not saying you're like Liam Gallagher, but you have that kind of thing when you walk in. There's a vibe which is, like you said, yeah, you don't really care what anyone thinks. Some people can get a little bit threatened by that. I think. Well, yeah, that wouldn't be my intention. I mean, somebody once said to me years ago, this French guy came to Bristol 20 years ago and yeah. he ended up having a really, really bad time. He's like an artist. He came on my fat the day before he left. I just want to say that when I first met you, I hated you. You were so hard. You were this, but you know what? You turned out to be one of the nicest people to me, one of the only people in this whole city that was kind to me. So I have a bit of a shell, and if people can bother to, to look beyond it. You know but you don't suffer fools gladly like a lot of people well, do. Just, you? People keep saying to me, like, what's your practice? I said, just to be a better fucking human being and to help people. It's like, let's get real. If all the people that like Banksy voted for Jeremy Corbyn, we would have walked the election. We didn't. We got hammered. Ask yourself why, because they all voted Brexit and the Tory party. And that's what I'm fighting against. We've got to fight against this tokenism. It's not everything, especially Bristol, it's, it's a beautiful city. And I, I love it here, but, but I live in Clifton Village. Now, when I came in like 30 odd years ago, the flat I'm living in, they couldn't give it away. Yeah. So, and the guy, that, the guy that was living here was much older than me. He was an artist. And Clifton then was full of poets. There were loads of secondhand bookshops. There were loads of cafes. It was all going on up here, you know? Massive mm-hmm. Attack, World Bank had their headquarters around the corner. All the bands, there were loads of squats here. It was full of answers. So gentrification has killed it. I, 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 I don't shop here. I don't use any facilities here. I live here. Most of the people don't even talk to me, even though they've got original banks and stuff. They don't talk to me. Also, more importantly, 12 years ago, my friend Lawrence Ho did an amazing show at the Centre Space Gallery, yeah? About 12 years ago. It was absolutely brilliant. And it was a really, really powerful show. And I went in there one afternoon. There was no one in there. And then five minutes later, Paul Stevenson walked in with two other guys. And we all had this really deep conversation. Just in case you don't know, Paul Stevenson is the man who led the Bristol bus boycott in 1963, protesting the ban on employing black people on buses in Bristol. It was one of the first black civil rights protests in the UK. 
it led to the Race Relations Act in 1965, which made it subsequently illegal to not employ someone based on the colour of their skin. And I wrote... I wrote to the journalist that wrote a book about, you know, Banksy from Bristol, yeah, because I know him. Yeah. He's not a friend. And I begged him to go and see the show. He wasn't interested. And yet he's always prattling on Banksy, the Banksy that, you know, another white middle class boat. And this person, so I don't talk to him anymore. I was just really pissed off when I told him. Yeah. So he doesn't give me any mileage now. So I can't even get in like a magazine like 24-7, you know. I think it's interesting how um, people like you and Lawrence, my, my sense is if you were in another city, perhaps, that actually you would be celebrated a bit more. So even if you think about something like Massive Attack or you think about the Full Cycle guys, they had to leave Bristol, really, to get recognised. And then and, and Bristol never really helped them on the way. And then suddenly when they do come back, they're heralded and celebrated as Bristol's own. There is a very much a kind of gatekeeper culture in our, in our city. Yeah, how, how, yeah, yeah. How, can we, how can we change that? Well, I suppose you, you have to be brave. You have to call them out. You either talk to them one of one to one, or you, or you just, or you, or you tell people. Bristol's a, it's a beautiful city. I said I'm Irish. My folks are Irish, and we're first generation. So, I've, I've, you know, I love being here, but I've got a love hate relationship with it. I find it really personally really hard to survive here. And yeah. you know, I tell why I could, you know, work abroad, and I've got people in London and, and and New York and Paris to buy stuff, and I've got like a tiny bit of respect. But and I'm grateful because I love being here. But I'd say on the whole, it's really tough because I have to deal with white middle class blokes. So I'm not, I don't drink. I, I'm not, I don't take drugs. I'm not into all that bullshit narrative that every time I meet one of them, it's like they give me the same crap. And I, I, I'm not interested. So a lot of people here, they, 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 you know, they won't give me mileage. But, I, you know, that's just the way it is. So you've been in the city when you, I mean, the, Yoko Ono decided, you know, international artist, you know, worldwide famous person decided to, to let you curate her in the city. And, you know, that, that wouldn't have come to Bristol if it wasn't for you. So what's, inter- what's interesting, I think, is, you know, that was being tweeted in New York, London, uh, Tokyo, all around yeah, the world. Yeah. And, like, you're probably more well-known outside Bristol than in Bristol. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it weird? It's weird, isn't it? Isn't it weird? We, I don't just find that odd. Your Yoko Ono um, exhibition was really interesting because when I went to it, it was quite... Yeah, you know, it's quite heavy in places. It was quite intense. Yeah, well, it, was, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it was quite like, well, what, the, what, what, the, what, what, what's this? Go, I don't quite get this, and intriguing. And some of it was real kind of out there stuff. And I, you know, because what you, one of your passion things is about is that you you want you know somebody from Southmead or Arcliffe or Embry to walk in to go, oh, what, what's going on there? And I think you said to me your first taste of art was when you went to the Tate Gallery and you went in there. You didn't understand it, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you kind of want you said i wanted to it did something to me there was a truth that you felt and you were like oh i want to find out more about this so that's key isn't it is that we need more people from the places that we come from to be exposed to this stuff exactly and you don't have to do that by patronizing them people don't want to be patronized you know i'm glad my ex-girlfriend's parents told me i was a piece of shit i'm glad they did because it broke my heart, and then I had to fix it together how I wanted to put it together to make myself who yeah. I am. I think I think that's a really good point, and I, I think and it's a real key issue in Bristol is there's a very paternalistic attitude towards representation, diversity, and opportunity, and it's kind of like um, uh, you know we will allow you to do something, but it, uh, you know what would you like us to know? We don't. We just, we want you out of the way. And a lot of people here get a lot of funding here, like giving to them institutions because they say they're doing it in the name of the people when they're not really. Well, a lot of people come to Bristol, like the guy who used to run the Onofini, 
who got the sack like three years ago because they had the lowest footfall they ever had. So that was heavily funded and subsidised, you know? Okay, well, just thinking, I mean, I recently did a thing in the Times about the old Vic, and but I also called out the Arnold Feeney, the watershed, who, in fairness, I'll do it a bit more now, saying that it does. it's never really spoken to me, to people that I know. I do think they've made some kind of progress, maybe in elements of the black community, I would say. But I still don't think beyond that they have any reach at all. I just want to know what you think of the arts institutions in the city and whether they do enough. No, I think they need to do a lot. I think they need to engage with their citizens. And it seems to me, having sort of dealt with it, that most of them don't. But having said that, the Bristol Museum, when I did the Yoko show, they had an on-site survey and something like 70% of people said they wanted to engage more with social issues. So now they're going to change their remit about how they approach some of their shows to make stuff that's a bit more engaging and a bit more challenging, which is what art does. How can you get more working class people interested in art, black and white, what, what, or, or certainly involved, involved well, and, and attending, yeah? For me, it's about, it's about greatness. You don't need to compromise. People, if I place a James Brown to some kid in St. Paul's who's eight, he's going to get it because there's nothing not to get because it's so brilliant. So we engage people and we keep that conversation going because we only keep the conversation going when, when they're engaged and they're only going to engage if you speak to them. And that means being honest and giving them excellence. And you had um, when your exhibition at the Georgian House, you, you had um, a load of kids that were brought down, didn't you? From, from... Yeah, yeah, we had 90 kids that, that, that came from Whitchurch and Harcliffe. That's 86 amazing. of them and 90 kids have never even been to the Bristol Museum. That's so amazing, we, we had... isn't it? Exactly, man, because that's changing because it's like engaging in that conversation. We had Madge Drescher. She gave them a talk about slavery. This was a whole, it was amazing, man, to see that. And I thought, wow, this is the most important part of the show for me, you know, yeah. because, and I want to keep that conversation going. And I just saw your interview in the Times with Tom Morris. Yeah. It, it made me choke, choke on my cornflakes because I want to, he needs to engage more, you know, because a lot of those schools, the academies, they've got theatres, but they have no, no theatre there. Why can't we get the Bristol Vic to go and do one performance there for these kids? We need to take it to them. And again, it's not, we don't want to be patronised. We need, to, we need to step up in this city, you know, because too many people, they don't even live here. And I've seen it. They're all in London. They don't give a shit about Bristol. This is a stepping stone for them. Get some people that care about this city because that's what's going to make the change. For me, it's fairly, it's fairly obvious. My, my background before being in, in journalism was in development, in community development, sport development, basically about upskilling and supporting people outside the mainstream, how they can access it. And for me, yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the things that I see... Uh, which is fascinating in the media and in art is that they're behind the curve with all this stuff because it's, you know, people, the whole mountain to Mohammed thing, they, you know, you cannot expect people to come to you to, to, you know, a geographically, but b culturally, it's such a huge step to come to walk in somewhere like the old Vic or to walk in somewhere like the Arnold Feeney. So I think you're right. One of the key steps to this stuff is to create satellite sites in communities is to build those links, those relationships and build a bridge that does, if you haven't got a bridge, that it is, you could do as many shows as till the cows come home. It isn't going to happen. I'll give you a really good example. My, my friend Paul Holbrook did a show one of his films in Clifton, one of Bristol University kind of sweet things they had. And it was like 80% of people from Hartcliffe were there. They would never have gone there if Paul, you know, Paul, Paul wasn't doing yeah, it. So it shows yeah. that can happen. That's because they were supporting their boy. Exactly. And I think that, and if he was doing something at the old Vic, and this is, in fairness, the red line thing is a good example of that with Joe Sims. That's what you need more to do. You, so it's what you do. You need to give a reason for people to be there. But even then, yeah, yeah. I think actually, you know, it's still a big ask. It's it's utter naivety, even naivety, stupidity, or they don't want to do it and they're just kind of blagging it and pretending they do. I find that there is no reason why working class kids shouldn't go to the theatre, shouldn't go to classical music, you know shouldn't go to art galleries of course they bloody should yeah of course they should man 
and, and it, it can be life-changing for them, but also brings so much to their life. But I suppose for most people in Bristol, you've got to think about logistics. It's, if someone's like a single parent and they've got like two kids, even getting to the city centre for them is going to be expensive. So we've got to somehow, like you said, build those bridges and engage with the whole community and not just do that little bit and think, oh, well, I've done that. I tick that little box. I get some more funding. You know, with, uh, I work with a guy called Vic Eccleston, who's like a local educator who works with all the all the academies in Withywood, Harcliffe. And we're trying to get the old Vic to take their place to their theatres because they've got all these empty theatres that no one ever uses. So why can't the old Vic do that as part of their outreach programme, just one performance for all those kids? So I'm pushing to make that happen at the moment. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's really sucks. And I hate what they've done with the old Vic. They've made it look like some, some Weatherspoons pub on the inside. I think I it's kind of... I, 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 in their def- I, I don't mind the bar. I think it's... I mean, I maybe that's it. me. It's Did good, you? Mate. Really? Okay. Yeah. They could have done a massive outreach programme for that. They could have taken yeah. the to Kids and Heart. They could have done a massive... They could have built a theatre somewhere for some on some council state. And that's what I'm saying. It's always about them. Yeah. That's what happens in the city. It's a small, it's a provincial city, which is also a strength, but it's its biggest weakness as well. Because if you, you can blag it here, if as long as you talk the talk and you're, you're white and middle class, you can sweep up in this city. I've seen it happening for 30 years. I've seen the biggest blaggers come here and get loads of money. And have as you? Soon as they, you have, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as soon as the game's up, they're back to London, mate, on the next fucking train. They can give a shit. So let's engage with some real people and respect to Bristol Museum's trainers. They did engage me. I wasn't easy to work with because I had to kick a lot of ass. They turned me down with Yokohama, even though I got to say yes. You know, so I had to fight. But now they've, okay, there's a conversation happening here. So that took seven years. I love this city, but we, we, we got to deliver more and better. And they got, I think they've also got a, a loud voices like you lawrence and paul who i sort of consider kind of outriders really and one of the reasons why you've all kind of made it into this space probably in later life is because a your path wasn't straight and you had all these bloody hurdles to get through in your own life but also the city sets up their own hurdles as well so i I have some hope because i think there are people like you emerging more now um sit you know we still need to cut through this glass ceiling that they put in front of people but I'm Irish. I, I, I ran, but I, I don't like that part of myself. I, I want things. To, I want things to be good for everybody. I really do. You know. But. Is there a kind of? Is there a kind of? Uh, uh, I don't think I can say this word on it, so I won't say it. But is there a kind of a thing? Somebody once said to me that like he prefers dealing with a cunt because you know what direction is coming in. But when some of these slightly more slippery, coercive sort of, they're all a bit nice, but they're not really wolf and she's with that, which I think there's a lot of those in Bristol that kind of, they, they virtue yeah, signal and talk the game. Yeah. yeah. Would yeah. you, would, would you, I mean, would you feel more comfortable? And I think that's a, that's a working class thing that we have. I think I'm, I'm okay with aggression. Come at me with aggression. Come at me with passive aggression and I don't quite know what to do. And then I react with aggression and then, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And, do you know what I mean? It, it, I sense yeah. that happens to you a bit. Yeah. Do you get yourself in trouble sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, I do, and I don't mean to, and I, I don't like that part of myself because it's like the Irish in me ranting, which I don't, which I don't like. But I just remember Martin Guinness's quote, you know, when they talked, when they asked him about the peace process, I love Martin Guinness, he said, we bombed our way to the negotiating table. Now yeah. that, that is strange because no one thought that was going to happen, did they? Just before he died, he was at Buckingham Palace having tea with the Queen. I thought, wow, man, that is radical shit. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Because that's massive stuff because no one thought that would happen with the IRA. It's yeah. like they made people talk to them. The police are listening. We are not advocating the no, direct well, action of bombing. Or I'm certainly not for um, you know, any of the arts institutions in the city. Uh, it needs a kick, mate. It does. Uh, what's next for you then, Jimmy? Because, like, kind of, 
you know, you go in all different directions. Just sort of contact Bristol Museum, so I want to do another show there for 2021. Okay. With a really big artist, and I want to do something with Lawrence Hope, so I'm hopefully I'm going to do something with him, either at the Arnold Feeney, which is I'm really pushing for. Yeah. I'll let you know, and I'm or at something with Bristol Museum with the Georgian House with him as well. And I'm working on my own show, which is going to be, I'm trying to do a show, a show in, inside the Vatican to do with the Catholic Church. It's called The Blood of Christ. And it's about right. the sexual abuse of the Catholic Church. So I'm already talking to them, their main PR guy in this country. He gets it and he loves it. Obviously, the whole COVID thing has put everything on hold. But sure. that's yeah. one of my massive projects. And I'm, I'm just about to go into Christchurch Studios and record some new string quartets I've written. Wow, man. Jimmy, thank you. That's been wicked. Loved it. You didn't hold back, mate, which, is, which I knew you wouldn't. Oh. And that's what we wanted. Lovely job. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city. Next week, we talk to a award winning sport writer and broadcaster, David Goldblatt based in the city of Bristol. David's recent work has taken him to The Guardian and BBC World Service talking about global climate change and its impact on sport. 